And now, let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 14. Last week, we made it through the end of chapter 12 and all of 13, and we saw Abram's not-so-finest hour as he comes down into Egypt. He tells a half-truth, which is functionally a lie, to Pharaoh, and he asks his wife to be in on it, and they get themselves into a bit of trouble. And God pulls through, and God is faithful to get them out of that trouble. But we learned some important lessons there from Abram and Sarai. This week we've come to chapter 14, and we'll see what's called the slaughter of the kings. And this is a battle that takes place um, around the area of Canaan. And the conquering northern kings come down and destroy a lot of cities, and they take the goods and the people of Sodom, and they head north with them. And one of those people that was in Sodom was Lot, Abram's brother's son, uh, Abram's nephew, Lot. And so Abram sets out to go rescue him and come back with his nephew. So we'll see all of this unfold we're introduced to this character, Melchizedek. He is a very, very interesting type of Jesus Christ. And we see in Genesis 14, he comes into the scene, and he's not mentioned again for about a thousand years until David mentions him in Psalm 110. And we'll look at that many times over this morning, so we won't spoil anything for you. Let's read verses 1 through 4, and we'll get going trying to sort through these battles here. Verse 1 in chapter 14, And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations, that they made war with Bera, the king of Sodom, Bersha, the king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, <laughs> king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. All these joined together in the valley of Siddim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they served Chedorlaomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. These first few verses describe a rebellion that took place in the days of Abraham. And there are two factions that sort of coalesce out of this political landscape. We have the ruling kings and the subservient kings, and they're broken into two groups here. The ruling kings came from the northeastern region uh, relative to Israel, Jerusalem. Amraphel, king of Shinar. Shinar is basically synonymous with Babylon, that area. You have Arioch, the king of Elisar. Chedorlaomer, there's a lot of different ways to say that, king of Elam, which is what would become Persia, the kingdom of Persia is Elam. Tidal, king of nations. And it turns out that these northern kings were actually all descendants of Shem, interestingly enough. And the subservient kings from down south were descendants of Ham. So just kind of trying to tie this back to Genesis 10 for you, when we talked about the table of nations And so the descendants of Ham, the subservient kings, as I'm kind of calling them, they were around the Jordan area, kind of around the Dead Sea. It says that they gathered, verse 3, all these joined together in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. So that would be the Dead Sea. The subservient kings are Bera, king of Sodom. He's going to be a major player as we move on towards the end of chapter 14, so Pay attention to Bera. We have Bersha, the king of Gomorrah, Shinab, the king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, which is Zoar, and we're not told his name. Verse 4 here says, Twelve years they served Chedorlaomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. Verse 4 names Chedorlaomer as the leader of those ruling kings, the conquering kings, if you will. 
And it appears that this group of kings from powerful northern nations had the southern kings paying some kind of tribute to them. So it was some kind of system, some deal that they worked out where the southern kings would pay the northern kings tribute. And it looks like for 12 years, this agreement was honored perfectly. Everyone was happy, in quotes, and they served Chetel But in the 13th year, this group of southern kings decided that they've had enough. They are done paying this tribute, whatever deal they had struck up, and they rebel. And it's interesting, this is the first time that the number 13 is mentioned in the Bible, but on throughout the scripture, 13 is usually associated with rebellion. And that is fairly consistent throughout the entire Bible. In the 14th year, Chedorlaomer and the kings that were with him came and attacked the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shaveh Kiriathim, and the Horites in their mountain of Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazazon Tamar. So you can do some digging if you'd like and find all sorts of inferences that are made about the battle sequences that happen here. And that's kind of all peripheral to our purpose this morning, so we're not going to really get into it too much. And it's speculative as well, so we're just not going to be too concerned with it. But if you're interested in military conquests and such, that may be interesting to you. However, it does seem, we're just painting with broad strokes here, it seems like the northern kings went through and defeated some of the possible allies of the southern kings so that when they eventually got south to where they were really attacking, they couldn't be flanked from the north by all of these allies up there. Does that make sense? So that's kind of the the thought that the northern kings seem to be thinking here. And you see all these tribe names, the Rephaim, the Zuzim, the Emim, and the Horites. At least the Rephaim, the Zuzim, and the Emim are all named specifically in the Bible, in Deuteronomy, I believe, as tribes of giants. So we see this thread that had begun in Genesis 6-4, And it's continuing. And it will continue throughout the rest of the scripture all the way up till Jude, for sure. And then you can make some inferences in Revelation as well. So that's really interesting that we see these tribes being defeated here. And again, you can look into that if it interests you. And verse 8, And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Sidim against Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of nations, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elasar. Four kings against five. Now he clarifies this is not quite a fair fight. Four kings against five. And the four actually win, the northern kings. They're more powerful. They're, they win. Now the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled. Some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. So they come in, they defeat the southern kings, They pillage their cities. They take everything they have and everyone who dwells there. These were not kind men. And the mention here of this area being full of asphalt pits, which is like tar, like a tar substance or bitumen, it's a petroleum 
based material. And that mention was one of the reasons that the Middle East was keyed in on to find oil. Very interesting. This battle ended with the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, these big cities, fleeing from their attackers. And those victorious northern kings took everything they wanted. And they also took a lot of inhabitants of the cities, including Lot. And that was a bad move on their part, but they haven't figured that out yet. Verse 13, Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner. And they were allies with Abraham. Now, one of the men who had escaped his captors, those northern kings, came to Hebron, where Abram was staying. And remember, Lot and Abram had split up before this point because the land couldn't sustain both of their many flocks. And so Abram is living separate from Lot. Lot gets taken away, and one of the captors escapes and tells Abram, hey, you might need to know this. Your nephew has just been captured by the northern kings. So these Amorite men, by the name of Mamre, Eshcol, and Aner, they're mentioned for a reason. And they're mentioned as being Abram's allies. They were confederate with Abram. And it appears that Abram had a good reputation with him and with a lot of people that surrounded him. Even though they were pagans and worshiping idols, it seems that he had a good (laughs) reputation among them. And these three brothers, Mamre, Eshcol, and Aner, the Amorites, end up going into battle with Abram. They fight for him. In verse 24, on down a little ways, these three brothers are referenced as having fought alongside Abram. And verse 14, Now when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Now obviously the author is using brother here loosely as a broad term and he's assuming that we understand who Lot is by now because just a couple verses later it was very spelled out for us. And it says here that Abram armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his house. That's an incredible number of servants to have born in your own house. That's just a lot of humans. And that's only the men who were of fighting age, who he armed to go with him, not the women and children. So there were more than that. And although that is a lot of servants, this... 318 would probably have been dwarfed by the armies of those invading kings of powerful nations like Elam, Persia, and Shinar, Babylonia. And Abram's fighting forces seem to be kind of more of a ragtag militia, right? It says he arms them. So they weren't armed before. He actually armed them. He probably had a a vast stash of weaponry. Now, Abram was a man of faith, right? He's included in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. He lived by faith, yet he was prepared. He had trained servants. He didn't have to train them when the battle came. He had weapons to arm them with. He was prepared, yet he lived by faith. You can do what you will with that. So Abram and his militia take off in pursuit of these kings. And uh, it seems that Abram spoke with God yet again um, before going into battle. 
because we see in verse 22 and 23, down towards the end of the chapter, Abram references a promise that he made to God not to take any spoils after his victory. It's almost like he came to God and said, God, if you fight for me, if you give me this victory, I won't take any of the stuff. I don't need any of that. I just need Lot to come back. And he made the promise to God that he would not take anything, and he makes good on that promise, as we'll see. Verse 15 says that Abram divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So Abram is no fool. He is militarily smart. He flanks them. He surrounds them and attacks them by night. He doesn't run up and yell and, ah, and go head on into this huge army. He attacks them by night under the cover of darkness, and he surrounds them. It says he divided his forces. And he gets the victory. God hands this large army over to Abram. It says that they continued to retreat north all the way to Hobah, which is north of Damascus. This is a pretty long way from where they started down south by the Dead Sea. Um, It's up by the Sea of Galilee and past the Sea of Galilee to the north. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. Abram rescued those people who were captured from Sodom, as well as the spoils that the invading kings took from Sodom. And those kings that came down to Sodom, we saw that they had already defeated several cities along the way. They probably were dragging all of that stuff with them too. So the amount of wealth that these kings probably had with them that Abram kind of freed up for the taking, so to speak, is immense. I mean, we're, we're talking about a lot, a lot of stuff. Of course, Lot was included in that group that Abram brought back. And Lot was certainly a big reason why Abram pursued them in the first place. But we're not actually told if there was any other kind of motive. So we don't know if Lot was the sole motive of Abram chasing them down or if there was something else. Bera, Bera, the king of Sodom, I want, this is, it's too obvious to not make something of. His name means son of evil, the king of Sodom. Sodom itself means burning which is ironic considering what God will do to them. The son of evil will make an interesting proposition to Abram at the end of the chapter, but we're going to put a pin in that and we're going to come back to it because we are introduced in verse 18 to Melchizedek. Melchizedek seems to show up on the scene fairly mysteriously in this valley of Shaveh with Abram and Bera. And he seems to also disappear rather mysteriously. So let's read through Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20. This is one of the two mentions of Melchizedek in the entire Old Testament. There's not much said about this guy till we get to Hebrews. And we'll look at that as well. Verse 18, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of, the, of God Most High, El Elyon. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. 
and he gave him a tithe of all. That is, Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth, literally, of all that he had. So what is the big deal with Melchizedek? He's obviously not mentioned very much, but he is a very, very important figure to understand. It says that he's the the priest of God Most High. Well, he's definitely not of the Levitical priesthood because Israel as a nation was not even formed yet and certainly not the priesthood that would come out of the law. Melchizedek predates the Levitical priesthood. How can this be? This man was a priest before Levi was born. And there's no record of Melchizedek's birth or death or any of his descendants, his genealogy, nothing. And after this mention of him in Genesis, Melchizedek would kind of fade into obscurity for about a thousand years until David, King David, in Psalm 110.4, makes mention of Melchizedek under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's prophesying, whether he knows it or not, about the coming Messiah. And David writes, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He shows back up. And then the writer of Hebrews expands on the eternality of, of this priesthood. And we'll come back to that as we look at that passage in Hebrews. But let's finish looking at this passage in Genesis real quick. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. That's verse 18. Verse 18 is short, but there is so much significance there. And the first thing you might notice is the fact that he brings out bread and wine. Now, where do we see that? Communion. It's the Lord's Supper. It's the elements of the Lord's Supper. And this begins the thread that is woven throughout Scripture in relation to bread and wine. Jesus, on the night that he would be crucified in that upper room, took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in reference to the Lord's Supper in remembrance of me. And then he took the wine and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And of course, when we observe the Lord's Supper, we do so looking back on his completed work on the cross. But here in Abram's day, Christ had not completed his work yet. That was yet in the future. But there was obviously some prophetic significance to this action of Melchizedek bringing out bread and wine. That is whether he knew it or not. He didn't have to know the significance of it, but it is significant to us. You know, Paul said that the things that were written aforetime, that is in the Old Testament, were written for our learning. And this is certainly something that we can learn from. He was priest of God Most High. What was the priest's job in the Levitical system? It was simply... He was a mediator. He was a go-between between man and God. He offered the sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. And Jesus, being our great high priest, is now at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. He is our go-between. we can start to see this picture of Melchizedek as a type of Christ, bringing out bread and wine, body and blood, as a priest 
a mediator between God and man. Now, I want to make mention before we continue, God Most High is the title for God, the name of God, that Melchizedek uses. El Elyon, Most High God. As you look in the scripture, this title of God is mostly used in relation to Gentiles. It is not a Jewish name of God. In Daniel 4, which is a portion that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, actually writes, Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar refers to Daniel's God as El Elyon, God Most High. Later in Daniel, Daniel's broken up into two main parts. The first is written in Hebrew, and the second is written in Aramaic. And the Aramaic portion deals with Gentile history. It's God's plan in relation to the Gentiles. And in that second part, in the Aramaic part, the predominant title of God is El Elyon. And we see Melchizedek here, obviously not a Jew, right, using this title for God in relation to Gentiles, El Elyon. So that's interesting, and you can mill on that. Verse 19, And he blessed him and said, Melchizedek blessed Abram. This is a big deal because the greater always blesses the lesser. This is what Melchizedek says. He says, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, again, El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth. He blesses Abram. He acknowledges also that Abram and he serve the same God. He says, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Melchizedek and Abram serve the same God. Melchizedek has knowledge of God. And verse 20, Melchizedek says, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He also acknowledges that God has won this battle. It's not Abram's battle to fight or to win, but God has delivered Abram's enemies into his hand. And that's something for us to take note of, right? We see evidence in the very end of the chapter, which we'll get to, that Abram entreated God before he even stepped into this battle. He made a pact with God, so to speak, and he was prepared. We saw his trained servants. He didn't have to go training them at the time the battle came up. It seems that they were ready. They were ready for whatever battles laid ahead, and we can take note of that because it's not the time of the battle when we should be preparing. It's not when our faith is tested that we should be building it up. That's not the time for preparation. That's the time for execution. You know, I saw a video of a, a SEAL team member, and he was a breaching specialist. And he would go up and he would fix the breaching charges onto doors, and the rest of his team would be behind him. And he would step back to a safe distance he had the switch, right? He's the guy in charge. And all he was waiting for was three words, execute, execute, execute. And he would blow the door and the team would enter. And the SEAL team, they're like the pinnacle of preparation and composure, right? And, and we are to put on the full armor of God. We're to do that before the battle starts. If you get to the battle and you're trying to suit up, you've already lost, right? So we have to be prepared before we even enter the battle. And that's a very practical, very simple thing that we can take from this. Again, this is for our learning. Melchizedek acknowledges that 
God is the one who won this battle for Abram. And what, how does Abram react to this mysterious Melchizedek figure? Very end of uh, verse 20. And he gave him a tithe of all. Now, whether that was a, a tithe of all that he had just conquered or a tithe of all that he possessed, even back in his home, we, we're not sure. But again, this shows Melchizedek's superiority to Abram. You won't see the greater paying tithes to the lesser. And this is a great time for us to transition over to Hebrews to see how Melchizedek can be seen as a type of Christ. So let's turn our Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We'll be in chapter 5 for just a moment, but we'll really hang out in chapter 7. Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians, and the author demonstrated that Jesus was better than the Old Covenant with several key points. Jesus was better than the angels. He was better than Moses. And the focus for our purpose this morning, Jesus is a better high priest than those who came before. And he was part of a better priestly order, the order of Melchizedek. Now, in Hebrews 5, verse 6, is the first time that Melchizedek is mentioned by name in this book. And the author quotes Psalm 110, verse 4, that we already looked at. And he does so to demonstrate that Christ was appointed high priest by God the Father. Christ didn't select that role, yet he was appointed. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. And that's quite a roast, isn't it? We have a lot to say about this Melchizedek topic, and he says it is hard to explain. This is a higher level idea since you have become dull of hearing. Man. Thankfully, though, he does decide to go on and write more about this topic in the following chapters. In the last verse of Hebrews 6, there's another mention of Melchizedek. This time, the author is making the point that Christ will be our high priest forever because he belongs to this priestly order of Melchizedek, which predates the Levitical system and will continue on for eternity. Now, Hebrews 7 contains the bulk of the writer's discussion on Melchizedek, and this chapter introduces us to a major section in the book of Hebrews that seems to demonstrate that the priesthood of Christ is better than the Aaronic or the Levitical priesthood. And the author spends the next several chapters illustrating that point. He makes these arguments for the superiority of Christ. And if you're taking notes, this would be a good thing to jot down. Christ is better because his priesthood is of a superior order. That's in chapter 7 of Hebrews. Christ is better because... He ministers under a superior covenant. That's in chapter 8. Christ is better because he ministers in a superior sanctuary in chapter 9. And Christ is better because his covenant is built on a superior sacrifice. Superior order, superior covenant, superior sanctuary, and superior sacrifice. Uh, chapters 7 through 10 of Hebrews. Now, our focus is going to stay on chapter 7. And in this chapter, the author makes three main arguments that prove the superiority of Melchizedek over Aaron. He makes a historical argument using Melchizedek and Abraham. He makes a doctrinal argument 
using Christ and Aaron. And he makes a practical argument using Christ and the believer. And we'll move through this, try to make sense of it for you. In Hebrews 7 now, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated, now this is the name of Melchizedek, it's translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now, the fact that we don't have a record of Melchizedek's parents or any kind of a genealogy helps us understand who he may have been. I know that seems counterintuitive, right? If you don't know where he came from, how do you know who he is? Some of the more plausible ideas regarding Melchizedek's identity are that he was either the pre-incarnate Christ, a Christophany, it's called, before the incarnation of Christ in Bethlehem. He shows up in the Old Testament, and he does show up several times in the Old Testament. This is seen by some as one of those times. He's also seen possibly as Shem, who was Noah's son. And this was a mainly early Jewish thought. They saw him as Shem, the king of Salem, and Salem is Jerusalem. So he was an early king of what would become Jerusalem. The last... And in my opinion, the most plausible is that this Melchizedek was just a man, and he remains fairly anonymous to us. There is no greater identity that we need to seek in him. He just, he, he really functions as a type of Christ. And I believe, and this is not the only reason, but something that I believe, builds on the fact that he should remain anonymous. We tend to latch on to figures, to venerate them and to put them on a pedestal that they don't necessarily deserve, right? And that's just our human tendency. We tend to do that. Uh, So I think that it's purposeful that he remains sort of a mysterious figure. Now we have his name, Melchizedek, king of righteousness, but we're not told a whole lot about him. We are told a lot about him in relation to Christ. And that's really his purpose here. And the way I see it, two of those three views that I mentioned are nullified because of Hebrews 7.3. We absolutely have a genealogy of Christ right? We know where Christ came from. On his mother's side and as the pre-existent one on his father's side, his heavenly father. We know where Christ came from. We know his mother, we know his father. It also says that this Melchizedek was made like the son of God. It doesn't say that he was the son of God. He was made to appear in the record as if he didn't have a beginning of days, no birth recorded, or an end of life, no death recorded. Now, that doesn't mean that he, didn't, he wasn't born and he didn't die. That's not what it means. It means we don't have it recorded. But Jesus' birth and death are recorded. And they're very well documented. So I would challenge the idea that this was a Christophany on those grounds. And identifying this figure as Shem was, as I said, the view of early Jews who predated the book of Hebrews, of course. And as for this idea of Shem, 
we also have his genealogy. And we find that in Genesis 5. There's no doubt from whom Shem descended, and that seems to provide difficulty to that view. And so we're kind of forced to conclude that Melchizedek was a man to whom God revealed himself. And this man chose to serve El Elyon, the Most High God, instead of the pantheon of pagan gods that he was surrounded with. He set himself apart. You know, everybody's worried about the guy on the island. This is the guy on the island. And somehow, God has revealed himself to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek has chosen to obey God. Interesting food for thought. Verse 4 here in Hebrews 7. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the, the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who received the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abram, as Melchizedek, and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. The point of that whole passage from verses 4 to 10 is that Melchizedek was superior to Abraham because he receives tithes from Abraham. And we already talked about that a little bit. And this also makes the Melchizedekian priesthood superior to the Levitical priesthood because Levi, though he was still in the loins of Abraham, paid tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham. So we see how this is all kind of tying together. And this is from a Jewish perspective. The writer of Hebrews was Jewish. And so that was the author's historical argument for this priesthood of Christ being greater than the priesthood of Aaron. Now verse 11 begins the author's doctrinal argument having already demonstrated the superiority of Melchizedek over Abram historically. He now presents new arguments that center around the new covenant that we have through Christ. He writes in verse 11, Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? A rhetorical question, if you didn't get that. But the answer to the question is, there would be no need for another priesthood if the Levitical priesthood provided perfection. There would be no need for any other priesthood. Yet, the order of Melchizedek was established before the law, and continues into eternity, which is another point that he makes later on. Verse 12, for the priesthood being changed, of necessity there is also a change of the law. The law was so centered around the priesthood that if the priesthood were to change, it would, of necessity, change the law. They're so inextricably linked. And verse 13, for he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. Jesus is being spoken of here, not Melchizedek. Okay, so there's, there's a shift. He goes into talking about Jesus coming from the tribe of Judah, of which 
Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. Melchizedek breaks all the rules. He was a king and a priest. You never see that combination in the Old Testament aside from Melchizedek. We have three roles that Christ occupies, prophet, priest, and king. In the Old Testament, you don't see a king and a priest, right? You see the other roles. There are only three people who are kings and priests. Melchizedek, Christ, who is after the order of Melchizedek, and who's the third? The bride of Christ. We are made to be kings and priests under Christ. We are imputed his righteousness. He, he's our great high priest, but he makes us to be kings and priests. It's well established that Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, not Levi. The priests under the law were required to be descended from Levi. They had to carry Levi genes. Yep, another awake. <laughs> Jesus could not have been a priest according to the law, but only according to the order of Melchizedek. Verse 17, for he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Again, Psalm 110.4. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness, For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. 100% yes. 100%. We have a better hope in Christ. The law couldn't perfect anything. Its purpose was to bring sin into the light. That was its purpose. Romans 3.20 says... Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. The law showed you your sin. You couldn't measure up to it. The law only showed you that you had a problem. It was inherently incomplete. I can get up in the morning and I can look in my mirror and I can see, you know, slobber across my face, my hair going the wrong direction. But looking into that mirror does nothing for me. I'm still going to remain in the same state that I am. It's only if I splash my face with the water, wash it off, comb my hair, if I do something about it, then I can change my state, right? The law functions as a mirror. It shows you that there's a problem that needs correcting. But it can't correct the problem by itself. It is inherently incomplete. Christ fixes the problem, right? Christ comes along. He dies in our place. His righteousness is imputed to us. We bear the very righteousness of Christ. That's remarkable. And that actually fixes the problem of sin. It reconnects us with the Father. He's our mediator. Verse 20. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. You know, I decided this morning I would just let the author of Hebrews do my exposition for me because he does it so succinctly, so well. The point made here in verse 20 through 22 is that Christ was made a priest with an oath from the Father. But the Levitical priests were not 
made priests with an oath. So how much better is it if you have an oath from the Father to go along with everything else? Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, speaking of Jesus, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. And since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is the final doctrinal point made by the author. Christ has an unchangeable priesthood. Since he is eternal and he will never die, he cannot stop being the high priest. In the Levitical system, those priests were prevented from continuing being priests because they died. Now Christ, after the order of Melchizedek, has an unchangeable priesthood. He ever lives to make intercession for us. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. And so the chapter closes here with Christ's relation to the believer as their high priest. He did not need to offer a sacrifice for himself. You see, he knew no sin. The priests in the Levitical priesthood had to first offer a sacrifice on their behalf to cleanse them before they could then bridge the gap between the people and God. Christ doesn't have to do that. He is actually both the sacrifice and the one who made the sacrifice. He was the lamb that was slaughtered, and he was the priest who offered the sacrifice. You know, Scripture tells us that he cannot have his life taken from him, but he lays it down. He made that sacrifice of himself. He took that on for us, and he laid his life down on account of his love for us. And I hope that the significance of this Melchizedek character has been made very clear. He is a type of Christ. He foreshadows Christ's work. And he demonstrates this priestly order from from which Christ would come. He supersedes the Levitical priesthood and he perfects the role of high priest before God. That is Jesus Christ. Now let's go back to our text in Genesis. And I wanted to spend the bulk of our time this morning there in Hebrews because it gives us so much insight into this character and into the significance of this interaction with Abram. We're in verse 21 in Genesis chapter 14. And I want you to remember the name of the king of Sodom is Bera, meaning son of evil. Verse 21, now the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. Persons is here literally souls. It's nefesh. You may be familiar with that Hebrew word. Nefesh, give me the souls and take the goods for yourself. Here is Melchizedek, king of peace, king of Salem, offering bread and wine, the body and the blood. And here is the son of evil offering all the goods in exchange for the souls. It's not hard to paint the picture of Christ and Satan here. Satan offers the goods of this world to those who will trade their souls. 
we actually see some graphic examples of this. And no doubt these are the extreme cases, but they come out of Hollywood and the entertainment industry. It's rife with these examples. The fame, the money, and all the material wealth that they can imagine, the goods, in exchange for their service, their lives, their souls. But this is how Abram reacts to this temptation from the son of evil. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. How wise of Abram. He's not interested in the riches of Sodom. And apparently, before he went into battle, he entreated the Lord to help him in the battle, and he promised that he wouldn't take these spoils of victory. He just wasn't interested. The battle belongs to the Lord, and the spoils belong to him as well. Verse 24, Except only what the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. You remember those three brothers that were mentioned earlier, the Amorites, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. They went into battle with Abraham. They fought with him. And Abram recognizes that they are not bound by the same promise that he made. So he says, no, let, let them take their portion. Now, I'm not going to take anything, but they can have what they need. So he does allow them to take some of those goods to replenish their supplies. And as we kind of close here, we're going to zoom out. And I want us to refocus on Lot. You remember that we mentioned last week, and we'll continue to mention this, that he's continuing down a path that puts him right in the middle of trouble. It's a very world-centered path that Lot is going down. Remember when Lot and Abram separated, Lot went to dwell towards Sodom. He wasn't living in the city yet. He hadn't completely gone into it. But it says that he pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. Though he wasn't living in the city at this point, we can tell that his affections were inclining towards the city and towards the, the goods, the worldly things of that city. His heart was turning that way. And now, just in the very next chapter, in chapter 14, Lot is taken from the city when those kings come and take it over. Therefore, he must have been living in the city. He's getting more and more comfortable with the things of the world. He's inclining his heart more and more towards those things. And, you know, one of the big things that we see continuing on through this narrative is the toll that that takes on his family. And we'll make a, a bigger point of that later, but... Even past this, even past him living in the city, he gets taken away, he returns to the city, and later we see him dwelling in the gate of the city. You'd think that this whole episode would be a bit of a wake-up call. You know, you get taken out of the city very forcibly, and then you go right back in. And we just see Lot being blinded by whatever kind of a pull to his flesh this city has, he then goes to dwell in the gates of the city. That means he was involved in the local rulership. He was like a city council member or something. He was really, really involving himself and his family in the affairs of the city. It leads him down a dark, dark path. 
So let's go ahead and wrap up. We will close in a word of prayer, then we'll be dismissed.